You're listening to Voices of Church Past. I am your host, Rob Barnhart. Today we'll be reading from one of Luther's sermons given on the fifth Sunday after Trinity. The text in which he'll be remarking on is Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. The sermon is called Concerning Faith and the Care of God in Our Daily Occupation. This gospel brings before us two parts, which it exhorts to faith and strengthens faith. In the first part, it shows that Christ cares for those who believe in him so that they are abundantly supplied against the temporal body needs. The second part, it shows that he will help them still more against spiritual needs. Thus, in reality, proving the truth of what St. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.8, godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of life, which is now with that of which is to come. Scriptures are everywhere full of these two kinds of promises. To faith, he assures temporal and body help by giving Peter and his partners so great a draught of fishes they have vainly toiled all night and caught nothing and now could have no expectation or hope of taking anything. But herein he adheres to the rule and order which he himself has given and taught in Matthew six thirty three. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. He here acts according to this saying and shows his truth by example and experience, insomuch as the people press upon him in crowds, first to hear his words and to such an extent that in order to preach to him, he sets out from land in one of the boats. But when he has taught them, he proceeds further to provide their bodily needs, so much as they are in distress and want. Although it is not indeed the purpose of Christ's coming or preaching to foster and provide for the body, yet he is not unmindful of it. When the first thing sought is his kingdom, he therefore takes upon himself the distress of these poor fishermen who, through all the night and with all their efforts and toil, have caught nothing. However, as they have lent him their boat to preach, listen to him, he, without any thought on their part, and before they have uttered any prayer, provides for them a drought of fishes so great that they are thereby enabled fully to learn and clearly understand that in him they have a master who cares for them and will not forsake them provided they abide in his word and remain his disciples. He would that his church or believing people should be comforted by the fact that he provides for them and that somewhere on earth they shall find bread and abiding place. Even though they are everywhere so persecuted and scattered that their place and provision in the world must be uncertain, we find this set forth not only in the present instance and others like it, but in many a beautiful passage, such as Psalms 34.10. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they, they that seek Jehovah shall not want any good thing. By this example, he especially shows how it goes with those upon whom he is to bestow his gifts and assistance, how he is accustomed to bestow these favors. It goes with them that as it went, those fishermen who labored all the night, yet had nothing for all their trouble and labor, had nothing to hope for. From human counsel aid, manifold tribulations, miseries, and distress are the daily experience of all Christendom. Christ is to help. There must be trials, trouble, and toil. It must come to this, that we despair of all human counsel comfort and ability then he comes with his help and shows that he still has the means of comfort counsel and protection deliverance that he is able to bestow all this when everything else has failed us when all that we have done or suffered and still may be able to do is nothing and in vain yea that in such need and weakness he gives and helps in richer measure than could be done by any human power skill and aid on the other hand by saying to his disciples put out into the deep let down your nets for a catch 
Christ shows that he does not forbid work, but would have that neglected which we have been commanded to do. He thereby enjoins upon them to continue in their handicraft. The two things are thus well maintained over against each other, namely that we must work and that our work accomplishes nothing. For if toil and trouble would have accomplished anything, then would the disciples have accomplished it during the hours of the night and all the more so often then? As they had hopes of taking a greater number of fishes while the silence and darkness continued than when Christ in broad daylight commanded them to let down their nets. Nevertheless, at Christ's word and at one drought, they knew them in full to overflowing. From this everyone may see and learn that no man lives by his labor or exertion, however great and unhampered this may be, but must live by God's blessing and grace. Let it remain at this, as the Germans say, that God helps, or God bestows his gifts overnight, which saying has come down to us from pious men of old, who realize its truth in their experience. Daily experience still shows that many a one toils tooth and nail in anxiety and hard work, can yet scarcely earn his bread or get rid of his debts and poverty, while as to another who takes it easy and never overexerts himself, everything comes and flows in so abundantly, you must really say all this comes from God's help and not from any man's labor. In Psalms 127.2 we are told, So he giveth it unto his beloved in sleep, as if the psalmist would say, It is in vain that you fret and plague yourself with the cares and labor day and night, in order to provide what is needed in home, much may be needed there, but it does not depend on your hands or labor at all. Nothing will come of your effort, as God himself is the house father, and makes it possible for you to say, God bestows his gifts overnight. Grain and all food from earth, yea, all that a man has or may acquire must be given him of God. Such favors he also bestows upon the godless and unbelieving, and upon them more than upon others. With temporal goods, he fills to overflowing the house and home of many a wicked man who never think of a god. And he does this not by their exertion or labor, but by a simple act of blessing, as we are told concerning such men in Psalms 17:14, Whose belly thou fillest thy high treasure. As if it is the psalmist here said, Deliver me from the men of this world who have their portion in this life whose belly thou fillest with thy treasure, that is, with such goods as are divine, hidden treasures of thine own, concerning which no man knows whence they come, over which he has no power, treasures which he cannot provide for himself, but must be provided, bestowed by thee alone. Hereby Christ would have Christians aroused and strengthened in faith, protected against unbelief with its harmful fruits, such fruits especially as covetousness, Anxious cares for the body and the present life, these cling to man by nature like an inborn plague, which together with the lust of unbelief moves and rages against the spirit, as St. Paul teaches in Galatians 5.17. Moreover, the devil seeks to hinder faith by his temptations and to suggest mistrust and doubt God. This too the world does by its hatred, envy, and persecution of the righteous, whose goods and honor and life it is after, and whom it would use as mats for its feet. On the other hand, I say we here perceive both the power and advantage of the faith which holds fast to Christ's word, adventures thereupon, as Peter does, saying, Although we have toiled all night and taken nothing, yet at your word I will let down the nets. It is this faith that so enlarged the drought of fishes as to fill the two boats, for without this the nets would not have been let down, nor would have any fish been caught. Scripture, however, everywhere shows the harm that is done by the avarice and anxieties of unbelief. 
For unbelief can by no means obtain anything from God that would benefit, comfort, or bless it, but so deprives itself of the divine benediction that it can have no satisfaction or joy in the temporal goods it desires. It can nevertheless possess a good and peaceful conscience. Hence it is that Christ, Matthew thirteen twenty two, speaks of all anxiety with regard to sustenance as thorns on the account of which the word of God cannot put forth its strength or its fruits. St. Paul expounds the meaning of the thorns in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, saying, They that are minded to be rich fall into the temptation and a snare, and many foolish, hurtful lusts, such as drowned men in destruction or per perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, which some, reaching after, have been led astray from the faith and have pierced themselves with many sorrows. Here compare the good things that faith brings and does and with the harm that is done by unbelief. For in addition to this, the faith has divine grace and blessing. It also has the promise that it shall be sufficiently supplied with all that it needs. It fills the heart with such goodness, peace, and joy that it may well be called the root of all good things. Unbelief, on the other hand, with all its cares and covetousness, shall have this as its reward that is not better thereby but must fall into all sorts of snares through many hurtful lusts and desires, and thus it attains to nothing in the end but eternal destruction. It's therefore nothing but the root whence all misfortunes spring. These two things are clearly seen in the world. Those men are at rest and in peace who content themselves with the things that God provides. They journey onward cheerfully and courageously, whatever their calling may be. They have enough to live on, and with all their necessities are so well supplied that they must say to themselves, No evening yet have I gone hungry to sleep, although it appears as if affliction and want are at the very doors. As according to our text was the case with Peter, they have this benefit from their confidence and faith in God that they need not fret and wound themselves upon the thorns or cares for the body or be stung and injured by them, but can, so to speak, sit amidst the roses in a garden of pleasure. As Solomon says in Proverbs 15, 15, he that is of a cheerful heart have a continual feast. The others, however, who plant themselves among the thorns of avarice and seek after great possessions must suffer the consequences of being stung and torn and must fall, not only into manifold temptations and dangers, which would be a mercy, only remain to death, but also into the snares in which they are so thoroughly caught that they sink to a temporal destruction and eternal damnation from which they can never again escape. Of this we may see daily examples in those who boast of the gospel and their Christianity. Everywhere we find robbery, oppression, and assessment, uh, usury, to such an extent that even God and conscience are set aside for the sake of a miserable penny. Then as if such a fall were not deep enough, they harden themselves to keep on their course defiantly, sacrilegiously, until they sink so far as to become the enemies of God's word, become blind to death, yea, become so unblessed and accursed that they are of no service in any station, can do nothing that is wholesome and good or useful to the pleasure and improvement of others. All they can do is cause and bring harm, misfortune and misery upon the land of people. All comes from this, as St. Paul says, that men are bent on being rich. For such covetousness and cares do assuredly keep company with a pride that makes men aim at something great and powerful. Covetousness would appropriate everything to itself. It begins at first by saying, Would that I had this house, this field, this castle, this village. Thus it grows greater and greater until of 
the curse, that he shall not himself enjoy such poverty and peace, tranquility has been gained by usury, but either himself shall lose it by God's visitation, or shall not descend to his hairs. Upon such unchristian doings must come the fearful wrath and punishment of God, which, alas, we have long ago greatly deserved, and time must come when he will turn us out of doors, together with the Turks and other terrible plagues, so that since we would not heed his word and admonition, he himself may put a forceful end to the godless business. This the believer avoids and escapes who, with good conscience and godly fear, occupies his station of life peacefully, quietly, and is satisfied with the things that God gives him. He does not expose himself to the dangers and temptations of snares. He is in no need of troubling himself with cares or anxieties or engaging with others, bickering, brawling disputes, quarrels, jealousies, and hatreds. He is a man of fine and blessed, useful character. One could be of service and assistance to many. He finds grace and favor with God, and men that shall benefit and honor even his children's children. The example before us is the gospel should teach and admonish us that we may learn to believe and thus experience through faith that God cares for his children, provides for them to such an extent that they need not worry and condemn themselves with cares or covetousness. And yet, though cares and covetousness are forbidden, should be borne in mind, as I have already said, that no one dare eat, cease from labor. The world turns these two things upside down, as it usually does with all the words and ordinances of God. To care and to strive for the obtaining of gold and goods is something that is determined to do. Such care, however, concerns God alone, and for himself alone he has reserved it. And yet the world is willing enough to let God attend to the work which it has been commanded to do. Yea, all the aim of his cares and covetances is to be set free from working in the sweat of its face. God wants just the opposite. He wants us to keep the work, to leave the care with him. By doing this, we shall do our part. With moderate labor and no care, we shall soon come into possession of all that we need. When Christ wished to bestow his gift upon Peter and others, he did not cause the fish to leap into the boat without labor or nets. So he very well might have done. But he commanded them to put out into the deep and let down their own nets, that is, they should engage in the handicraft they understood and learnt were accustomed to, and should act as fishermen. Christ keeps aloof from the lazy, unfaithful idlers, who will not do as they have been commanded, and will not keep their hands and feet from straying. Thus he teaches a twofold lesson, that he will not give us anything unless we work for it, and that the things we obtain do not come from our work, but only from God's help and blessing. You are to work, but you are not to depend upon that work. As if that which resulted therefrom were of your own accomplishment. In short, our work produces and bestows nothing. Yet it is necessary as a means through which we may receive what God gives. The disciples must use their hands to let down the nets and draw them in it. If they wish to secure anything, they must be willing to do so. Yet they are obliged to acknowledge that their labor did not bring about the result. Otherwise, they would have succeeded in the first place without Christ. He therefore permits them to make a sufficient trial, to discover by experience the toil of this entire night has been in vain and to no purpose. This he teaches us by daily experience in all sorts of affairs and doings and governments on earth. Very often it permits us to labor long and arduously without results till it becomes bitterly painful to us. We are forced to complain with Peter. We toiled all night and took nothing. This he does that we may not venture to depend upon our labor, but you may know that he must grant it success, that we have not secured this through our own effort, skill, or diligence. But diligence, money, effort, 
many a father and mother have bestowed in order to rear their son to honor and virtue, that with a hope and confidence as great as if, to use a common expression, he were to become an angel, yet he has become nothing but a notorious, willful, and prodigal child. On the other hand, many a poor and forlorn orphan, upon whom very little effort and diligence have been expended, have grown up so surprisingly well-bred as to make us think that it happened just so, and did not depend on any diligence or care of our own. What do all civil, civil governments more generally complain than of fruitless labors and efforts, even where there is work is carried on energetically and in earnest, where there are men who are willing and able to rule well, men who are not lacking in wisdom and understanding power and might. These are obliged to learn after a long period of governing that thereby they have not accomplished anything. How often it happens, indeed, that the best plans, the wisest counsels, the brightest ideas prove to be the very worst. It resulted in nothing but harm and ruin. The very wisest rulers have always experienced to complain of this. Thus we may learn that God will not grant prosperity and success through human wisdom, plans, and intrigues. These are things we depend upon. Hence, if the world be willing to receive counsel from a plain and straightforward man, namely from the Lord our God, who certainly has some experience and understands the art of ruling, the best counsel would be that each one in his administration of government should simply direct his thoughts and plans to a fruitful prosecution and believing performance of the duties enjoined upon him, not placing any dependence upon his own thoughts and plans, but casting all his cares upon God. The man who does this will at least be sure to discover that he who trusted God accomplishes more than he who seeks to transact his own affairs according to his own wisdom or thought and his own power and might. So it goes with the spiritual government of the church, especially indicated in the narrative now before us, where I have preached and taught during the past 10 or 20 years. There another could perhaps done more in one year, and one sermon may bring forth more fruit than many others. Here also it is true that our labor, diligence, and effort can accomplish nothing. These two things must go together, namely that each one does his duty. He nevertheless acknowledges with Peter by labor cannot bring forth anything. Thou does not give the increase. As Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 7, I have planted Paulus water, but God gave the increase. So then neither he is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. In short, all human nature and life are so that until God gives the increase, we may often labor long and much, and all to no purpose. But the work is not to cease on that account, nor should any man be found without work. He must wait for the increase till God gives it. However, the circumstances are especially pointed out under which work becomes useful and fruitful, namely when Christ appears commands to let down the nets. That is when there is faith that takes hold of his word and promises that cheerfully and bravely does what has been commanded, waiting with prayer and supplication for his help and blessing. This is to say with Peter, Lord, I have indeed done and labored sufficiently much, but I know that I shall accomplish nothing thereby unless thou art present to give strength and increase. I will therefore depend not upon myself or my works, but upon thy word. Leave everything to thy care. Thus shall we prosper and experience shows that Christ, when he is present, gives us more as the result of little labor and effort than any one would have dared to hope. For there can be no failure or scanty fruits where he adds his blessing.
Thus the disciples could see the experience for themselves. What a difference there is between the work they have done the previous night without faith in Christ and the work they did when without prospect of taking anything. They nevertheless threw faith in Christ's work a Christ word at one draught drew in an overflowing multitude of fishes. Therefore, if we accomplish little or add nothing through our labor and effort, we must put the blame upon our unbelief or upon the weakness of our faith and not upon anything else. Yet, this is also true that Christ often delays or bestows his help as he did on this occasion. But this he does that he may drive us to implore his help the more earnestly that we may learn to strengthen and maintain our faith so that we do not doubt or cease to labor, but continue to wait for the bestowal of his gifts in his own good time and way. For it is his purpose to guide all Christians into a knowledge and experience of the fact that their livelihood and help do not depend on what they see or do, but upon what is invisible and hidden. This he therefore calls his hidden treasure, as we have already said in regard to Psalms 17:14. That is, such a blessing, help, and deliverance that we have not perceived or laid hold of before, but are hidden in his word and grasped by faith. Behold, this is the first part of our gospel. The events which took place were recorded that Christians might be instructed and comforted by the fact that Christ cares even for the temporal needs of his church, so that it is fed and supported. Although it should come into distress where everything is at a point of ruin, where it seems to have done and suffered everything in vain, Always and everywhere does it happen that the gospel, as it advances, brings poverty in its train, together with hunger and nakedness and want. But at last, when the storms of the devil have blown over a little, the world's greed and appetite have been satisfied, Christ comes and declares that he too is the Lord of the earth. For in Psalm 24.1 it is written, The earth is Jehovah's, the fullness thereof. Also in Psalm Eight six through eight. Thou hast put all things under thy feet, all sheep, oxen, yea, the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea. All these must obey our Lord. Must bend beneath his scepter, so that the world, after all, cannot prevent him from his sharing in its food. But as I have said, we must first have hunger and want. That is Peter's empty boat and net. Even there has been long continued labor. Yet Christ, after such a trial, makes his gifts all the more abundant, not only a tub full with which the disciples might have been satisfied, but the entire net full and the two empty boats full. He does this that their faith in his spiritual help may thereby be strengthened. He shows this sign to Peter and to the others whom he intends to call as his apostles, not only in order that they should believe that he would care for their bodies, but that he would so strengthen and help them in their apostolic calling that it should not prove to be in vain or fruitless. Well, thank you so much for listening to Voices of Church Past. I am your host, Rob Barnard. To my brothers and sisters in Christ, may God persevere you steadfast in one true faith given unto the saints everlasting. May I see you one day before my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, free from sin, free from death, perfect unity in the one true faith, to worship our God as we ought to now, unstained by sin. Till then, God bless.